everyone, this is Butcher Pastor and tell you today I'm on with the Bible exegete, otherwise known as Benny Crucero. We're going to be talking about the biblical exodus, whether it's the early date, the late date. Benny doesn't think that either are good arguments. How are you doing today, Benny? Doing pretty good. Thank you for the invitation. And it's always a good topic to talk about, at least for me. It's yes, very exciting. I spend a lot of time studying it. Yes, sir. Okay, great. So, uh, I mean, just general intro. What is your background in all this? Um, I am a pastor. So basically today we're going to talk things I don't tell my church, just like your channel says. <laughs> uh, because... Uh, I don't see that much of a relevance, at least to my audience, and it would bore many of them. Uh, so that's a good thing to have a channel with that name, because there are things pastors don't tell their church for one reason <laughs> or another. Uh, but uh, I um, studied uh, theology basically for my bachelor, for my MA, for my THM, and I'm right now looking for a PhD program. Uh, all these degrees have been in the theological field, and I have uh, an increased interest in biblical studies. Mostly, first part of my uh, studies, I was more interested in the New Testament, but in the past few years, I've become much, much more interested in the Old Testament. Cool. And obviously, you've um, you kind of grew up on the early date, or yeah, the early date. Yes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I um, in all the schools I studied, uh, I was presented with the early date, and I didn't think too much about it because it wasn't a topic of interest. It would just pop um, on here and there, and I would look at the arguments a little bit and just accept what my professors told me. Um, but then with time, especially in the past three years, I really wanted to look into the arguments of all sides. And it's not just two sides. There are many more theories out there, but these are the ones that gain the most traction. This is your reminder that Zach does not hold to all of the views held by the people he interviews. This could mean he disagrees, agrees, or is undecided on what they say. Like and subscribe to see my face more. So let's start with the early date. All right. So you you started at least your you know college career and all that with with these early date arguments. Why exactly, or what exactly made you change your mind on this? What made you say that you know you didn't find them um, as very good arguments? I um look through the arguments and maybe for our listeners just to summarize a little bit uh, the arguments of the early day it goes something like this it basically starts from a literal reading of first Kings 6 1 that talks about 480 years that passed since the foundation of solomon's temple and it's agreed by all sides that that year is 966 967 based on Tilly's chronology. So going from this year, one of the two, because it's not 100%, whether it's 967 or 966, going with the numbers we have in 1 Kings 6.1, we add 480 to 966, and that ends up with something like 1446. And therefore, uh, the early daters say, based on this verse, 
the date of the Exodus is 1446. That's the argument. It's based on a literal reading of 1 Kings 6.1. But the problem of chronology is much more complex than that. It's complex because you have variants in the Septuagint. For example, right in this verse, in the Septuagint, you have 440 instead of 480. And so uh, with these variants taken into consideration, things can vary. 40 years is not a little. It can be something quite different when you look at the lives of the pharaohs. Uh, so going from this argument, they also use Judges 11.26, where uh, Jephthah says that 300 years had passed since they settled in the country. It's obviously not a set number. It's an approximation, but it supports the early date Exodus view. And the problems I found was looking into the archaeology, into the historical data. We could come up with a number and say it's this date, it's this pharaoh, but when you start and break it down, looking at the exact pharaoh and going through his reign, things change, and that's where you need to look for evidence. And obviously, anyone can find circumstantial evidence. Hmm. You look at this detail or that detail and you make it fit with your own view. Uh, for example, the early Exodus uh, supporters say that, look, in year nine, uh, Amenhotep II, the proposed pharaoh, was the one that um, had a campaign and he brought about 100,000 slaves, if the numbers are real, to China. And the reason is because they were out of slaves because they left the country. This is very circumstantial. It could be for a number of reasons. It could have been because he had some cities in Canaan that weren't paying tribute anymore, and he just had to show them who's the strongest. And he brought all these slaves. It was maybe some internal policy that was changed. For a hundred of reasons, we can argue what was the cause of uh, that decision to take so many back to Canaan. So. I, I don't find arguments like this compelling. And therefore, one of the biggest reasons I stopped supporting the early data is no change in the pace of Egyptian development. Hmm. When you look at the text of the Bible and you see the plagues and how they develop, you expect some kind of change of pace in Egyptian development. If we were to put the finger and say it's this pharaoh, I would expect something to change. And obviously the change should be negative. Now, I'm talking about early view, but maybe here and there I'll, I'll swing to the, to, the late view, uh, to the late view as well. The peak of Egyptian power was during the New Kingdom was reached sometime during the reign of Amenhotep III. What early daters are doing is placing the Exodus sometime around the reign of Amenhotep II, sometime, sometime, some, sorry, some even favor Thutmose III, which was the Napoleon of Egypt. Basically, this guy was the biggest military leader Egypt ever had. At least a lot of people consider this view. So placing 
an exodus during the reigns of either of these kings, both of them were great military leaders. Thutmose III and Amenhotep II, placing the exodus during this time when Egypt is still increasing, it's still growing in its military uh, capabilities, in its uh, influence in the Levant, uh, in its economy, uh, I think it's not plausible. It's just circumstantial evidence that's brought, like the example I gave previously. Now, here's a thought that should entertain at least some of us. We have gone through the COVID pandemic, and as we were going through it, it affected all the world. I live in Romania, and by the way, I'm not a native speaker speaker of English, so please excuse my English at points where I don't express it accurately. Uh, but this COVID pandemic affected United States, affected Eastern Europe, Europe, it affected China, it affected all the world. Do you think there were uh, changes in policies? Sure. Were there uh, changes in medical approach? Were there changes in economy? Totally, complete change. Complete change. Well, this pandemic hasn't been something as awful as other pandemics have been through the history of the world. Now, why do I say this? We have the impression that those plagues that are presented in the Bible just happened for, let's say, eight months or however long they took, somewhere around six to eight months, maybe. That's what most scholars say. And then they just uh, left and everything was back to normal. Well, imagine all the bugs, all the dead animals, uh, all the death, all the dead bodies of the people. What is that going to cause in a world that doesn't have modern medicine, that doesn't have anything of the things we have today, some of the stuff being basic medical mm -hmm. stuff? It could cause an epidemic. An epidemic can easily transform in a pandemic in a world that is global, that has economic relationships. You have ships going from Mycenae or from the Minoan Islands uh, to Egypt. You have uh, trades between the Babylonians and the Egyptians. You have all this, mm -hmm. and we know it for sure. Well, it could very well cause a pandemic. Sure. And uh, obviously, this is a, is, is a part that a lot of archaeologists don't consider. There have been some good books written on this. One of them is written by a doctor. Philip Norrie is his name. He wrote A History of Disease in Ancient Times, More Lethal Than War. Many don't consider this aspect. Ariel Kozlov uh, does a great job writing about trends and changes that happened during the periods of epidemics. It's written in Kemet. It's a Egyptian magazine. Very good. Um, just wanting to po point to these things that I haven't read in any of the views. And I think it's an aspect that needs to be considered when we study the evidence about the Exodus. Okay, cool. Clarification question. So obviously you're right. Yeah, totally. You know, I mean, specifically if we're talking about all of Egypt having, you know, all kinds of disease, plagues, all that kind of stuff, that's going to have an effect, uh, 
of course, the late day view, we have, um, the, you see whether that's the cause of it, I, I don't know, I'm not going to say, but we definitely see like in the second part of Ramses II's reign, like things go crazy and it like goes downhill, which of course we don't see that in the early date. It's, you know, they're, they're full of power, so you have a bunch of plagues, disease, that's one reason why we should see something. And the other thing is that if, the, if you know, Israel, or not Israel, uh, if Exodus, well, if Egypt is so powerful during um, the reign of the, you know, whatever pharaohs of the early Exodus are, um, you know, they're extremely, like, large military power as well. So, like, it'd be really difficult for them to be able to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, like, I totally get that. Say they're in Avaris, okay? Say the plagues are in Avaris, and that's where it is specifically, or wherever the pharaoh is at specifically. Um, not the entire of Egypt. Is that possible under the early date? I think that's possible uh, in a way in both dates and not at the same time. Even if the <laughs> plagues were local. Okay. That's how all pandemics start. Just think of the COVID sure. thing. It all started in Wuhan, in China. Mm. And it spread through all the world. They obviously they didn't have airplanes back then when I checked research last time, but they still had trade. Basically, the Nile worked as their highway. They're going back and forth, trading on it. Uh, mm. Also, they had... Uh, transactions with all kinds of people from the ancient Near East. Mm. And all this caused, uh, could cause, could cause a pandemic. So even if it was local, it could easily spread given their, Mm. their knowledge of medicine. Mm. Okay. Even if it was Uh, just a city, mm. if it was as half as big as the Bible says it was, Mm. it could easily spread. That's my point. That's what I want to say. And I don't find evidence for a plague that would turn into an epidemic or pandemic in either theories, nor the early, nor the late. You mean like texts that say, hey, there was this disease that happened? Is that what you're saying? Well, there are documents like uh, the Hathi prayers of the Hittite king. At one point around 1300, he prays and says, the plague has been ruining our country for 30 years. And he tries to find the cause of the disease and how it started. And he actually says it started from Egypt when they had a war between Egypt and uh, them. Uh, They got prisoners of war and those prisoners of war from Egypt brought the plague. But he's trying to figure out a reason why is it happening to them. And he confesses, most of them do that. They confess the sins of their ancestors, saying his Mm. dad or his brother, who also died because of the plague, um, were the cause of the plague. So you have certain details in certain documents of that time. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. All right. So let's go on to your next one. You've got other reasons why you don't take the early date. Yes. So my first reason was no change in the pace of Egyptian development. My second reason is the archaeological data from Jericho. 
I think Jericho is an important site that needs to be studied by both parts. It's not the only argument. And another thing is a lot of people focus on Jericho, but there are other cities that need to be studied as well. But because Jericho is the biggest and it was studied intensively starting in the 30s, 1930s, all the way to about our time, um, we have a lot of information from Jericho. Basically, the last Egyptian scarab found, and not just scarab, any artifact that came from Egypt uh, found at Jericho was the scarab of Amenhotep III. He started reigning sometime around 1390 until 1353. This was found in the tombs at Jericho. Early daters would say that it's plausible with the chronology they're using by dating Amenhotep II to 1446. The the biggest problem is that pottery found at Jericho is specific to mid-14th century, just as the scarabs proved that Jericho was an Egyptian vassal in the 14th century. You wouldn't have scarabs unless there was some kind of connection with the Egyptians. They were either vassals or they had some economical contract or something. Basically, pottery, walls, and Egyptian inscriptions, mostly scarabs, are the three proofs that show us whether we got the chronology right or not. And... Mm -hmm. Having a scarab of Amenhotep III makes it unlikely that it would be uh, during his, or yeah, basically during his reign, they would place it that uh, Jericho uh, was conquered. Another thing, obviously, Jericho, many think this, but it's wrong. Jericho wasn't a huge city like many envision it based on Joshua, but it was walled, it had enough residents, so the spies could hide in it. Also, one of the leading uh, archaeologists, uh, recent archaeologists on uh, Jericho, favors the existence of a palace in the 14th century because of an an administrative tablet that was found. So the problem is the early exodus places the, the conquest of Jericho sometime around 1406. While... You would have to take the chronology. We'll talk about this a little bit later. You'd have to take the chronology about uh, 20 years. And you would basically only have the last years of Amenhotep III. But the scarab we have is from his early his early years. So it's, it's a very complicated situation given that this is the last scarab we have found. But... What's interesting, and I will quote here one of the leading archaeologists on Jericho, Kathleen Canyon, she draws the following conclusion from the archaeological data. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's very interesting. You rarely find this quoted by either sides because it favors neither sides. Uh, it's quoted from, uh, let me see, from Digging Up Jericho. It was published in 1957. And I'll talk a little bit more about uh, Kenyon soon. The quote goes like this. As concerns the date of the destruction of Jericho by the Israelites, all that can be said is that the latest latest Bronze Age occupation should, in my view, be dated to the third quarter of the 14th century BC. That is 1350 to 1325 approximately. That's when she dates the destruction of Jericho. 
And she continues and says, this is a date which suits neither the school of scholars, which would date the entry of the Israelites in Palestine to circa 1400 BC, nor the school which prefers a date of circa 1260 BC. So basically, according to Kenyon, the leading scholar on Jericho, both popular theories that are still standing now after 100 years do not accommodate the data from Jericho. And in case somebody considers her statement ambivalent, Kenyon makes an even stronger statement when she says, it is a sad fact that of the town walls of the late Bronze Age, within which period the attack of the Israelites must fall by any dating, not a trace remains. So she's aware of the fact that the walls of the late Bronze 2B, which is the 13th century, were leveled, basically. This is the argument that um, late daters use and say, well, we don't really have data if it was conquered, conquered or not because we don't have the walls. But what we have is we have pottery and we have scarabs. And the scarab, the last scarab from Jericho is from around 1380 approximately, from the reign of Amenhotep III. And then during the 13th century, when we have the late date, the evidence uh, for pottery is very scarce. Lorenzo Nigro says during the Ramesside reign, there is a dramatic drought of archaeological evidence. Now, hmm. she agrees and everyone agrees there was some kind of leveling that took place, not necessarily in the 13th century, more like in the Iron Age, which would be like the next century on, uh, there was a leveling of the walls. But even when you level walls, the pottery remains there. I mean, hmm. you're going to level the walls, but pottery is going to break. Whatever's left there is still going to be there. They might take the rocks. They might take what's there, but there still should be some kind of evidence. And it's very, very scarce. Now, hmm. Obviously, Jericho compared to the second intermediate period size of the city was much smaller. Uh, as I said, many have the wrong idea, you know, it was this huge city. <laughs> yeah, well, right. It's the story in the Bible that wants to present the first conquest. And we need to understand Joshua um, was also national and patriotic literature. Uh, I'm not minimizing the event of the Bible, and I do believe it happened the way it is presented. But um, the fact that walls fell, fell apart without a military attack by itself, it's something extraordinary, no matter how small or big that city would be. As long as, you know, they didn't have the modern technology, not even from the Middle Ages where they would have those ramps were like the Romans to conquer cities. Uh, still, it was a, a great feat to conquer such a city, no matter how big or small. But you would still have some evidence. It was still a city. Uh, like I was saying before, Lorenzo Nigro uh he believes there was some palace there. If you had a palace, it was something, you know, at least mildly important. You had scarabs, so they had some connections with the Egyptians. It was something that was 
positioned in in a good place they had waters there they had the jordan that wasn't too far they had interior springs in the city so given all these details you would expect that since the conquest would have taken place at the end of the 13th century so basically about 80 years of the 13th century you would have people living there uh, having pottery breaking it uh, having all kinds of stuff and life taking place there there would be some evidence left yet the evidence is very 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 little uh, even the Bible, it doesn't say that they didn't live in, they didn't use Jericho after the walls were destroyed. We need to understand that the exterior walls were destroyed, but the inner part of the city remained there. And we have evidence in the book of Judges twice that it was used. Uh, it was used in chapter one, and then it was used by the um, Moabite king where he lived and we have the episode with uh, Ehud in chapter 3. So it was still used. It was maybe just temporarily, maybe people were coming, um, sitting there for a while and leaving. It wasn't something, you know, major. It wasn't like a city anymore because it wasn't walled anymore. But, you know, it was like free lodging. There was a roof above the head maybe in some of those places and they still used it. All this thinking that... Uh, the conquest of Jericho in the late uh, day theory would take uh, place around 1220, you'd have 80 years in which you should have some pottery, you should have some grain, you should have that kind of stuff, and you don't have it. Now, like I said, I'm swinging both ways in a way, both with the late and with the uh, early day theory, but um, this is one reason I don't find the arguments of either theories compelling. The archaeological data from Jericho, as Kenyon says, doesn't favor either theory. Hmm. Now, just so we're on the same page and while we're at it, um, so for the late date, uh, you said there's no evidence. Now, what? Now, you know, I'm no expert, I'm no archaeologist. So just to be clear, you say no evidence. Does that mean that there's no evidence of, like, anything like we don't have anything there so are you implying that like there was just nobody there at that time uh, or that we've lost it or what no it's here's evidence um it's very very little and we do know this it's accepted it's accepted because of erosion and especially because of leveling so what they did in antiquity was a city that wasn't used anymore they would basically take anything they could from it or just to use it for another reason, they would level it. They would make it straight. They Be would flat. take the rocks. They would take the beams, wooden beams. They would take every single thing that they could use. It's not like they could uh, go to Home Depot and buy stuff. You know, wood was, was very scarce. Uh, rocks uh, were chopped. And it was better to grab a rock that was chopped than chopping one by yourself. So because of this activity of leveling, uh, obviously evidence was destroyed. But what I'm saying is there at least should be a little bit more evidence because it wasn't a village still before it was conquered. I'm not saying it was a huge city. But if you have 80, 80 years of a city like this being lived in, you would have some growing, some leveling, not leveling, uh, deposits taking place, happening. 
just by people living there for about 80 years. And yet, it's true that it was leveled, but uh, the evidence is very, very little. Uh, now, Nigro, Lorenzo Nigro, the one that has done the latest research or led the latest research on Jericho, reanalyzed all the data from Kenyon. He's not a Bible believer. He doesn't believe the Exodus even happened. So he's just doing his work and research. Uh, and he says basically the evidence is very, very little. Kenyon said there was basically no, no pottery, nothing. He comes in and he still finds something here and there, but it's very, very little. So just so I have your position, well, the typical, um, you know, what happened because of this leveling, which is, you know, supposedly when there should have been people there um, during this whole, all this events of the conquest uh, of the, for people that take the late date view. Um, during this time period, are you saying that we should see some type of pottery? Maybe it's not Israelite, but just some type of pottery or some yeah. evidence of yeah. something. And because we don't see that, you know, maybe that's a good reason to think that just nobody was really there at all. I wouldn't say nobody, but it wasn't, you know, a, a walled city that was lived uh, sure. by a population that lived and was settled there. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there are 80 years. Uh, there are about 80 years in which, so that's most of the century. Uh, according to the late date, the city would have been destroyed somewhere around 1220. You have, or take, depending on the view they're yeah. taking regarding the reign of Ramses II when it started, maybe eight plus minus eight years. Mm -hmm. So, but you, but you also admit that, uh, you know, it wasn't like a huge town. So we certainly wouldn't expect a lot of stuff like, like previous times in Jericho. But you're just saying that we, we should expect more. The peak of the size of the city, Ruha was its ancient name, was during the Hyksos period, the second intermediate period. And when the walls were studied, that was the peak when it was reached. It was destroyed probably by Ahmos the first or maybe a little bit later. And um, then it restarted its life, but in a smaller size. But this doesn't mean it was a village, like I said. Uh, it was still a walled city. You had scarabs. You had uh, cuneiform tablets. All this indicates that, you know, there was economic life there. There were treaties. Uh, the location was very, very good. And so uh, you would expect more. And you do have more in the 14th century. You have Mycenaean pottery. That means they traded with... Uh, basically the population of Greece of today, somewhere around there. You had uh, all these evidences that take place in the 14th century, happen in the 14th century, you have buildings in the 14th century. And this is the reason Kenyon places the destruction somewhere in the second part of the 14th mm -hmm. century. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And now, uh, is there anything else you want to add or you want to keep going? Yeah, we can okay. keep going. There would be right. a lot to talk about, but I'll stop here. All right. Uh, use of high chronology. What do you got to say about that? Uh, this is, I would say, uh, another problem of the early Exodus date because right now, obviously, chronology 
has its flexibility in the Bronze Age, but it's not like we're talking about 100 years, 200 years. Obviously, not even the um, early daters are using that much of a difference. To quote uh, Kenneth Kitchen, he considers that for the New Kingdom, which spans from about 15, depends on which view you take, 1539 to about uh, 1069 approximately, you have uh, a range of about 20 years for a margin of error. And maybe in the past years, this decreased a little, but we'll go with what he wrote in the 90s, which I think it's correct. Uh, 20 years is the margin of error for the New Kingdom uh, Egyptian chronology. Well, the early daters come and they move the date of Amenhotep's reign that according to the um, middle date or the low middle chronology, was around 1425 and they move it to about 1455 that is 30 years so basically they're adjusting the chronology of Amenhotep II by 30 years you have the minimum given by Kenneth Kitchen of or the maximum sorry not the minimum the maximum margin of error of about 20 years so this is another problem another problem in this area would be sometimes they use the low chronology, sometimes they use the high chronology. You know, things get really complicated. You got to know what you're reading, who you're reading. Uh, and this, we need to understand that we do have evidence for a lot of the pharaohs. But sometimes we don't know exactly how long they reigned. Sometimes we don't know if there was a co-regency or not. It's the same right. thing with the Israelite and uh, the kings of Judah. And so we need to leave some room for a margin of error. And the consensus, the academic consensus at this point is about a maximum of 20 years, while they go with about close to 30 years difference. And so this is a problem. And like I said, sometimes they're not using it accurately. Sometimes they go with the low chronology. Sometimes they go with the high chronology. This needs to be read carefully when you work with the information you receive, because you'll see maybe a certain, a specific year, let's say 1288. Well, for some, 1288 is the beginning of uh, Ramses II's reign. For others, it's during Seti I's reign, because of this margin that can be used back and forth a little here and there. It's not like our modern chronology when we say, you know, 2023 and everybody knows and it's settled and nothing's going to change. We need to understand that uh, in the matters of chronology, it takes a little humility in working with this because we do not have the absolute exact dates, but we're pretty close. I'd say given we're talking about a period that happened 3,500 years ago, 20 years is not a lot. Basically what you're saying is that it's really difficult to match up the the times with the early date if you're not using the high chronology but you know at this point there's really little evidence for the high yeah. chronology the high chronology has been in favor early in the 20th century but with time especially in the second half of the 20th century things have changed 
and now people are going more towards uh, a low chronology and actually um, what's called not, not low sorry i said low multiple times middle chronology i'm wrong i retract it's a middle middle low chronology so from the middle chronology you go uh, another eight years behind mostly most of the times that's what it is about so it could be a long long discussion and we could just talk hours and hours just about this detail because chronology is is very important um yeah i'd recommend uh david falk and titus kennedy's debate on that they, they kind of got into the chronology just a little bit and uh, do you know what uh, titus kennedy what his view was on that well, basically, he goes with this uh, high chronology and David Falk, uh, you know, he talked about this, that it's not correct to use the high chronology. Hmm. And That's I cool. agree with that argument. Mm -hmm. All right. So number four, cities conquered in Joshua are thriving under the Amarna period. Do you, yes. Do you want more? Yeah, I think this is one of the most important arguments. We need to know what Amarna is. Basically, this is the modern name of the city. Back then it was called Akhet Aten, which was the palace more more than the capital. It was more like a, a palace city uh, made, for, made for King Akhenaten. He moved the capital in a way where the palace, uh, he moved it to this city he built. And uh, it didn't live long. It was short-lived because he was the heretic pharaoh that created that religious revolution. And soon after him, the new kings like Horemheb, they wanted to go back to the Ma, to the order that they had previously with the gods that uh, they all believed in. And therefore, uh, we know the period in which uh, th this capital was in place. Well... The great thing is that here at Amarna, the modern city of Tel Amarna, they found the archive of the pharaoh, or to be exact, of multiple pharaohs. And it's a collection of about, oh, where's the camera? It's a collection of about 382 letters of which uh, 350 have relevance and can be read. And most of them are the correspondation uh, corresponding be between the Canaanites and the Egyptians. Now, we rarely hear the response of the Egyptian pharaoh, but we read what the Canaanite kings, but they weren't kings, they're called mayors. Uh, the Canaanite, Canaanite mayors were writing to the Egyptian kings. And we have the last part of uh, Amenhotep III, um, mostly his last part of the decade. We also have Akhenaten, uh, all his reign, and um, it goes all the way to Tutankhamun, the famous pharaoh. So basically, roughly speaking, it's a period of about 30 years. And as we read these letters, in these letters, we find important names that are mentioned in the Bible. They're mentioned in the book of Joshua. And we read city names like Hatsor, Lakish, Megiddo, Bethshan. Many of these cities are said in the book of Joshua to be conquered. conquered. Yet, when we read uh, the letters of Amarna, we see them in existence. 
we see some of them thriving. There are some disputes with a certain population called Habiru and other uh, uh, disputes that they have in between them, but they're standing. And therefore, I think this is one of the strongest arguments against an early date. Hmm. These would be just a few arguments I could go with more, but I'll stop here against the early date. And this is what made me change my mind regarding the early date. Gotcha. Really fascinating. Okay. All right. So let's get on to um, kind of the late date topic, but maybe a little, a little shift. So I was really interested to hear what you thought about Exodus 1 and the interesting different views on that because like, you know, who the Pharaoh is, of course, in Exodus 1, you know, a specific Pharaoh's name isn't mentioned. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, it seems like there's a lot of stuff going on and maybe even different time periods. Um, so uh, could you talk about, you know, what is happening at Exodus 1, um, you know, the slavery and new king in Egypt, and then, um, you know, I guess different theories to explain, like, who the, the kings, the pharaohs are? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there is a clear sequence of events that takes place in Exodus 1.11. To talk about the arguments of the late date, basically, the late daters focus on a literal reading of Exodus 1.11, which says, Therefore they set task mask, sorry, taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So we know from history that Ramses lasted from about, uh, let's say, 1279, the first year of uh, Ramses II reign, although it wasn't exactly this one, to about 10, oh, sorry, 1130. That's when it was in use uh, until the new capital was built and moved to Tanis. So you have a specific period of time in which you have the city name Ramses used as the capital of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, the late daters rely on a literal reading of Exodus 1.11. Now, we need to read the sequence in which all these events are mentioned in the book of, Gen- in the book of Exodus. And I would say also the book of Genesis is relevant in this topic as well, because it tells us how they ended up in Egypt. Basically, because of the famine during the time of Jacob and of Joseph, they moved with all their families to Egypt and they stayed there. Um, as we say in Romanian, Joseph was on high horses, meaning, you know, he was up there. Uh, he was actually having a chariot, riding a horse and all that. He was in charge of the country. Um, not the first one, but he was m- maybe the equivalent of a vizier. And we need to understand that it wasn't all the Egypt as we know it. Now, late daters uh, and very few early daters, but late daters, almost all late daters agree that this took place during the Hyksos period. The Hyksos came to power somewhere around, let me see if I remember the numbers correctly, around 1630, somewhere around there. 
And uh, there were basically Asiatic Semitic population that moved to Canaan. We see this in Genesis a lot. When famines took place, a lot of Canaanites uh, and people from Canaan went to Egypt to find food. We see Abraham doing this. We see Jacob. We see Isaac. All the big three uh, are doing this. And people started asking themselves most likely, well, why should we just go back and forth? Why shouldn't we settle here? Because famines just happen all the time in Canaan and in Syria. And so they settled there and this Asiatic Semitic population grew and grew and grew. And at what one point, we do not know exactly, there was some void of power. And somehow these Asiatic Semitic populations took charge of northern Egypt. When northern Egypt and southern Egypt broke, they were separated. Um, and this usually happens in the intermediate periods, first period, uh, first intermediate period, second intermediate period. Anyway, in this context, you have um, Joseph having the favor of a population that might have been culturally similar to them. And he ends up in power, but things don't go all the way like that. And there's an interesting detail in Genesis, we know that he buried Jacob in Canaan. And we know that Joseph also wanted this, but he wasn't buried in Canaan. Now, my, my reasoning is that he, if he could have been buried in Canaan, Joseph would have told them, go bury me in Canaan. But he can't. And Exodus 1 says that the Pharaoh, that Joseph died and then the next Pharaoh came. Mm -hmm. We could see if there's a margin here or not, but there's another option. We know that when Ahmos I came to conquer Avaris, he didn't go straight forward. What he did was he went to the area of the Suez Canal of today and he basically locked the country. Because parts of the Hyksos fled to Canaan and to Syria. And therefore, in order to not let the enemy flee, but to basically lock him, lock them within the country, he uh, captured the garrisons that were over there to the east of Egypt. And then he went and sieged Avaris, which well, wasn't a too long of a siege. siege. And so... I think this is what happens in the spirit. Joseph dies within this period of uh, either siege or around the time when the country was locked and they were fighting with the uh, with the southern dynasty, the Theban dynasty. And this is the reason he can't go to Canaan and be buried there or give the order, because there were a lot of people. I mean, even if he didn't have an army from the pharaoh. There were men, there were a large tribe, there were a large clan, they had slaves. They could easily gather 100, 200, let's, let's, even a smaller number would have been enough to take him to Canaan and have him buried there. So I think this context fits really well with the conquest of Ahmos I and this period of siege. And this is the reason behind him not giving the order to bury him in Canaan. Because he couldn't. He wanted it really badly. He wanted it that bad because uh, he wanted it that bad. He ordered them and told them when I'm going to, when God is going to uh, 
it doesn't say free you there, but when God is going to search you or something like that is in English, uh, then you can go and take my bones with you. And so in this context comes Exodus 1, which basically tells us they multiplied. A new Pharaoh came, and many understand these words of a new Pharaoh, meaning a new dynasty, which is the 18th dynasty. This would be Ahmos the first, the founder of the 18th dynasty, um, the period of the new kingdom, the most important uh, period probably that a lot of people know and talk about. And so... Here we have a sequence of events that is presented in Exodus 1. From verse 1 to 7, it basically tells us Israel stayed in Egypt. Then verse 8 through 10, it tells us a new Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites. Then 11, 11th verse says they built Pithom and Ramses. Uh, verses 12 through 14, they multiply even more uh, than the fifth sequence of events pharaoh orders the midwives to kill the baby boys and the sixth event pharaoh ordered everyone to kill the boys because the midwives didn't listen and then comes chapter chapter two where moses is born under this order basically what the author wants to do is to introduce moses and how his story took place and in order to do that he needs to do a summary or a recap of all of the events that uh, took place in Egypt in this period. According to the sequence of events presented in Exodus 1, Moses' birth comes after the Israelites started working on the cities of Ramses. So we're told in verse 11 that the city of Ramses was built, and then his birth comes only in chapter 2. Now, Ramses the Great started ruling in 1279 BC, and he built the city of Ramses, just like his name says. Even if he started building in his first year, and Moses was born in that very year, there's not enough time for everything mentioned in Exodus to happen. Moses would have been 14 at the time of the Exodus, because that's usually when the Exodus is placed, um, somewhere around 1265. Uh, Hoffmeyer places it in 1267. Even if we say it's 1260, let's go as low as 1260. He would have been less than 20 years old. Remember, we need to have enough time for him growing up, his vigilante crime, his running away from Egypt to Midian, his marriage, birth of two boys, and the death of all the men that wanted to kill him, according to Exodus 419. And this is a very important detail because they had basically they had to die. It wasn't just the Pharaoh. Uh, the word there mean is used for plural men because there are many people that knew about his crime. And the text says all of them died. So we could just guesstimate how long it would have taken for these people to die. But my estimation is somewhere over around at least 20 years for all these events to take place. Another aspect might be an argument or not. Uh, I think Moses' reluctance to go speak to Pharaoh indicates he had forgotten Egyptian because a very long period of time passed since he spoke. Now he says he's not a good speaker, but it could be as well interpreted as, you know, I'm not a good Egyptian speaker. And you forget a language if you don't speak it for 
a number of decades. Okay. Therefore, because of this sequence of events, when we look at them, I think they're not plausible with the late date. Now, the response to this, and Dr. Falk responds to this and others as well, okay. is that it's an amalgamation, basically a mix of details that isn't presented chronologically. And I looked into this argument as well. I don't think it stands. I rather read it as a summary and I'll explain immediately the perspective of Dr. Falk. There's a difference between a summary and an amalgamation. Right. When we want to tell a short story or just share something in a few details, we just go through a few events. Like if I were to ask you the history of America in one minute, something like that. Well, you could start with, let's say, Columbus, and then you would go to the Revolutionary War. You could go then to uh, the Civil War, maybe mention Second World War, and here we are today. And just go through a few details. But look what I did. I did them in chronological order. I was in the 15th century, then 18th, 19th, 20th, and here we are in the 21st century. Um now, obviously, somebody would say, well, that's not how they did, did it in antiquity. Well, I looked through the Bible, and I didn't find uh, other examples of amalgamation that are out of chronological order. You look through the book of Genesis. They don't present Jacob, and then they start with Abraham, then they go to Isaac. They go through the sequences of events. Now, obviously, they don't give us all the details. It's just glimpses here and there. Mm -hmm. But there's a chronological, obvious sequence of events. When you look through the Bible, you go through from Genesis to the last book of uh, the Old Testament, and you see the history of Israel, uh, at least majorly speaking, in chronological order. It's not all the time uh, that it's in chronological order, but... That doesn't mean, mean the author just flips from this place to another chronologically. And what I did, I asked this very question. Um, I asked Dr. Fogg this very question, and he gave me the answer. Um, and I will show you a timeline that he has made of this. It's the classical answer you will get from late daters. Just uh, for a break here, can... Uh, I put I, it on the I'll, I'll put it on later. Don't worry You'll about it. put it on later. Yeah, okay. okay. You can just read from it. Yeah. So basically, um, it starts in circa 1520 BC with Ahmos I becoming the new king that arose over Egypt. And he didn't know Joseph. As I said previously, most likely by this time, Joseph was dead, as the text says. Then from step number one, which is in verses eight and nine, he goes to number to verse number 10, which the Israelites are seen as a military threat if they ally with the Hittites. Now, we have a skip from 1520 to 1320s. That's 200 years, a jump of 200 years. Mm. Now, I know Dr. Falk laughs at the idea that Ahmos I would see the, uh, hit, the Hyksos as a threat, but we need to understand one thing. 
the Egyptians and especially the 18th dynasty learned a very terrible lesson uh, because of the Hyksos. I mean, they had pharaohs that were killed by the Hyksos. The Theban dynasty, the um, 17th dynasty had pharaohs that were killed by the Hyksos. And that's why Ahmos I wanted so bad to revenge the death of his ancestors. As the old saying goes, once burned, twice shy, I think it fits really well the fact that Ahmos I understood we need to be really careful about these people that are in our country. It might not be a specific enemy that, that he was thinking about, but he was thinking in general terms. When we're going to have a war, when we're going to have enemies, we're going to have enemies from the outside, but we might as well have enemies from the inside. So we're not just going to let these people here run their business as usual. Plus, they were a good workforce. Therefore, I think the idea that this pharaoh that decides to enslave the Israelites fits very well with Ahmos I as well. The very king that uh, arose over Egypt. And another interesting thing, we have speech bubbles, sort of. We have uh, direct speech from these pharaohs, and they're quoted. Obviously, they weren't quoted in the ancient manuscripts, but we can see when the author goes from indirect speech to direct speech. And he says in, in a first-person uh, manner, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So you see a connection between what is told about this Pharaoh in verses 8 and 9, and then what he says in verses 9 and 10. Therefore, I think this jump from Ahmos the first, 1520, and then to, uh, to I, 1320 approximately, is... Too much of a jump. Interestingly enough, then in verse 111a, Dr. Falk goes back to 1520. So verses 8 and 9 are in 1520. Verse 10 is in 1320. And then in verse 11a, he goes back to 1520. And it says that they had to uh, do hard labor. The, first, the fourth sequence, the building of Pithom and Ramses, he jumps from 1520 to approximately 20, uh, 1270, to the reign of Ramses II when Pithom and Ramses were built. And then the fifth episode or stage, he goes back to Ai or Horam Heb. It's not clear which one of them is. Uh, the order to kill the Israelites' babies is given by either I or Horemheb. That's the perspective of Dr. Falk. So you have this back and forth going, which is covered by the idea that it's an amalgamation. Mm. For a time when people were really interested in presenting things in a narrative style, um, I agree, they weren't the perfect historians were today. Or this sort of history is always um, difficult to, to be written. But 
you know, they didn't have the same skills as we do today. They didn't have the same requirements as we did today. But still, jumping 200 years back and forth, then going another 50 years in the past and all that, it's really out of order, even if they didn't know all these names. And I'm sure they didn't even know the names of these pharaohs. But still, there is a sequence of events that takes place. And at least that sequence of events was transmitted in the oral narrative they presented, or if they had it in a narrative form. Hmm. Therefore, looking at Exodus 1, through these events in the sequence they're presented there, um, I rather see it as a summary. It's a short summary that prepares... Uh, the second chapter where Moses comes to the scene, what led to him being in that situation mm -hmm. and also a recap of uh, their history. It's true. It's a few hundred years that are in 22 verses, uh, but that doesn't mean there's that much jumping, you know, for a couple of centuries from here to there and then going back and so on. Well, I mean, Genesis does something like that uh, when we talk about like, huge time gaps and like you know 11 chapters worth supposedly you know a thousand plus years and 11 chapters worth and you know all kinds of different stories happening um maybe not exactly here um as far as the time gap so like i, I totally i think that's definitely plausible the that there's a there's you know a large period of time here um i think i mean i'd be interested to know what other scholars have said about this because I, th I think that if you're going to argue for this amalgamation view here, that you have to point to somewhere else in the Hebrew text, or maybe even outside the Bible, where this would be common or or even possible. I'm not I'm not familiar with the time when you have all this jumping, um, although I'm certainly open to the idea of like Exodus in general. There's a lot going on here. Okay, um, Carmen Joy Iams has written on. Um, in her in her book uh but basically it was a book um and she had just one article in the book it was like kind of like in honor of john walton but basically what she does is she takes all of the creation language in exodus and it's a ridiculous amount like ridiculous and of course in exodus one we have um just a couple examples of that you have um like the the pharaoh is seen as like as wise and then the Israelites, they, they're multiplied. Uh, you have parallels to the serpent and the Pharaoh, and then you have parallels of Genesis 1, greatly multiply, fill the earth. Yeah. And then you, you have that with the Israelites. But yeah. it's, it's like a ridiculous amount. So I know with certainty that something is going on here, that it's not completely literal, but at the same time, we don't have this amalgamation, I don't know, anywhere else in the text. So I'd like to see that from um, Falk and others. Uh, do you know, like Hoffmeyer, Kitchen, did they present any views on how they saw the pharaohs here? So Hoffmeyer goes with Ahmos the first as okay. being the initial pharaoh that uh, does the enslavement. Mm -hmm. um, I think Kitchen does the same. It's the main uh, late Exodus date proposed pharaoh and i agree i think it's the best context that uh, suits uh, the history okay. a lot of uh, early daters don't accept this because it would be too early and it would be too late 
because um, you have the idea based on uh, Exodus twelve forty that it would it was four hundred thirty years that they were in Egypt, but we have the Septuagint variant that says that they were in Egypt and in Canaan for 430 years. And when you split it into two, the time they spent in Canaan and the time they spent in Egypt, it goes down to something like 215 in each of the two. Mm-hmm. And uh, of those 215 in Egypt, uh, when you break it down, about 100, 100, 100 something years of slavery. So the old saying that goes in the movies, uh, we've been slaves for 400 years, uh, according to the Masoretic text, uh, is true. But according to the Septuagint, is not true. And I favor, in this case, the Septuagint. Uh, Also, Paul favors this in Galatians 3, and maybe Acts 13 can be used as an argument. And we, we could talk about that in a second, a little bit more detail there. But specifically with Hothmeyer and Kitchen, and you said Akmosa, but what about like you know you know Falk proposes I Hornheb, you have this switching going back and forth, then you have the mention of the city of Ramses, like what do, does Hofmeyer and Kitchen ever argue for this like switching back and forth or do they comment on it? I didn't see any any of their books. I um I. I'm trying to remember where I read or listened to their arguments in this, but their arguments go in the similar line. I haven't read as much Kitchen as I did Hoffmeyer, but um, I'm almost certain uh, I did read something in the same line as Dr. Falk. And I don't think it's Dr. Falk's argument per se, uh, as he studied and he references both of them a lot of the times. Sure. So, all right, so let's talk about this. So, I mean, I know that, you know, there's a lot of people that take these views. I'm not an expert. I'm just trying to read the text. Um, at the same time, like, I'm, I'm curious to see, okay, so first of all, this, this Ramsey's point. Um, well, actually, no, let's start. All right, let's start with verse 8, okay? So it says, you know, it's going from, you know, they're in this, Joseph is in the Israel, or Joseph is in, Joseph is in Egypt, and then a new Pharaoh comes to town that Joseph mm-hmm. didn't, didn't know about Joseph, and he came to power. So I don't see a particular reason, maybe you can tell me where I'm wrong, but I don't see a particular reason why we have to assume that that is Akmosa, the first, like, Yes, I think we certainly have to say that there was a change of some kind, but it doesn't specifically say what king. And all of the king or all the pharaohs that were mentioned here that are in this discussion would not known about Joseph. And all of the, the pharaohs also came to power over Egypt. So if those are what we're considering are like classifications for which pharaoh to choose here, I don't see why it specifically has to be Akmosa. Do you understand what I'm saying? I understand what you're saying. Uh, we don't read literally the idea he didn't know Joseph. Mm-hmm. The meaning behind the words is, to put it bluntly, he didn't care anything about Joseph or his descendants. Right. Now, if there was a continuity of a dynasty, if it was uh, the son of a previous pharaoh that came to power, 
he would have had respect for the allies of his father. Right. And that's why a lot of uh, scholars are talking about a change of dynasty as well. Because to know somebody is not in the sense of uh, he never met Joseph. Even if he had never met Joseph, he would have known about him, what he did for the country. And he would have known, look, these guys are his relatives. So we're going to be in good terms with them because of everything that Joseph did for the country. Mm-hmm. Well, if Joseph is perceived as a Hyksos by the Theban dynasty, mm-hmm. then Anything that came from the Theban from the Hyksos was perceived as negative by the Theban dynasty. Right. Right. And that's the argument that's supported by Hofmeyer, by Kitchen, Dr. Falk, and many others. Right. So maybe I missed something, but oh my goodness. That's a nice ringtone there. Sorry. Say that again. Um so maybe maybe i missed something but right so i mean i certainly there's some type of shift dynasty change whatever we don't necessarily like i mean i think we can imply that who did not know about joseph can imply that didn't know all about the great things about joseph all the great things that the israelites did so like he's not going to care about the israelite people now i mean that seems like obvious but like so if the issue is like you have all this switching here like, why not say that I or Hornheb was was the heir, the the pharaoh that verse eight refers to? Okay, so just just so I'm being clear, I, I'm I'm implying here that there's a huge time gap between the Joseph and verse eight, um, for seven and verse eight. So, I mean, if we're talking about like when the you know the 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 book of Exodus was written. We're talking about, you know, after everything happens, we're talking about probably Moses or maybe even someone later than that saying, hey, this is like, you know, our tradition, what we've remembered. Um, So, you know, if I'm in Moses' perspective, I'm thinking, okay, so, you know, our ancestors, Joseph was in charge and then some guy came along and and he didn't know Joseph. And then that's what starts this whole story. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there weren't more people that didn't know Joseph. It could be that there's this just big time gap that isn't worth mentioning for the story. Maybe Moses doesn't even know. I mean, I, I don't know exactly. I mean, but yeah, go ahead. Keep going. If I look at Exodus 1, mm-hmm. you have this king mentioned in verse 8 that he rises to power. Mm-hmm. And in the next verse, immediately, you have a speech bubble. He said to his people. Um, now, obviously, it could be a skipping if you want to introduce a skipping here. But the connection, the idea of direct speech with verse 8 and verse 9, the direct speech coming right after the verse 8. Mm-hmm. I think these direct speeches are important mm-hmm. because they reference the person that was mentioned before. That's I don't know if the argument stands enough, but... Uh, that's how I see it. I, there are four speech bubbles. There are four direct speeches in the book of Exodus. Mm. And I think we should consider the fact that they are direct speech and they're not in direct speech as the rest of the chapter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so maybe we can um, we can get on to move on to that then. So 
hypothetically speaking, so so obviously the big issue with with this view of you know going back and forth, besides that I haven't seen necessarily any textual evidence. Maybe there is. I just haven't heard it. The it seems weird, like it would just be switching back and forth. Like it'd be much more simple to say that you know it's referring to one or two or three pharaohs here. So, and as you said, with the the quotes, it seems like the quotes are referring to that that one verse eight. So, say say just hypothetically, um, like I or Hormheb. So you know the reason why you know Falk takes this view that we have I and Hormheb. Um, as the ones that are like, you know, being mean to the Israelites is because apparently we have texts of them being jerks. And mm -hmm. um, not only that, but we also have texts where, you know, the uh, was like King Tut, he like he dies or whatever, his wife trying to look for a husband. I and Horm have the choices. They both she she both didn't she didn't want either of those so she yeah. goes and finds tries to find a Hittite king they go and kill the Hittite king I take is in control mm -hmm. um after you know the that the Hittite king is dead but they're still worried about the Hittites so that's why Falk says okay it's yeah. the the Israelites are they're worried that the Israelites are going to join with the Hittites so it's like I get it like the kind that makes sense with I and Hormheb that like, you know, maybe that's what that's referring to. You know, it's 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 a little circumstantial, but it would make sense. Um, so so hypothetically speaking, say verse eight, you know, I, I certainly as a new as a new king after King Tut or especially in comparison to the whole Joseph's time period, mm -hmm. new kings. He certainly doesn't know about Joseph. So he comes to power. Um, he said he notices that the Israelites are big. He's worried that they're going to join the Hittites. So I or E or Hormheb, they go and, you know, say, hey, we have to oppress the Israelites. Yeah. That seems to be a lot more simple than saying that, you know, Agmosa and the switching and all that. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I haven't heard the argument that way made by them. <laughs> so... Uh... The idea is, you know, Hornheb is uh, presented as this savage pharaoh mm -hmm. because both of them were generals. They were in the army. You can argue about, let's say, half of the 18th or 19th dynasty pharaohs that they were savage. Right. Tutmosis III pours oil, boiled oil on the head of some of his enemies. Uh, Amenhotep II, uh, he just grabs a lot of people and just kills them with his own sword and you have all kinds of details like this by many pharaohs mm -hmm. so the idea that Hormheb would be savage uh, and he would do this doesn't stand just with him right. you can say this about many of them because they had to show you know or these strong kings people have to fear us right. and so many of them be, did these things on purpose and then they were put on the steelies and so on on the steely and so on because they wanted uh, to show how strong and savage and mean they can be to their enemies um, so it's circumstantial with Hormheb. it can also be perceived as circumstantial with amenhotep i mean um, ahmos the first but this is the consensus at this point that that new king is ahmos the first yeah. um, 
Carmen Joy mes mentions this, although she's not an Egyptian, uh, James Hoffmeyer and many others. So unless the consensus changes, uh, yeah, you can push the arguments, you can write about <laughs> it, you can uh, write articles trying to say, okay, we can stop this jump and just go straight forward to that. But I think the argument, the consensus at this point makes sense that it was almost the first. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So... Um, so specifically with the Pithom and Ramsey's part, um, so the, the way that I'm reading it is, so it says, so they put four men over the Israelites to oppress them with hard labor. Um, you know, this is kind of a translation thing. It says, it basically says, and they built Pithom and Ramsey's as store cities mm -hmm. for Pharaoh. Um, mm -hmm. one issue with this whole view here is that, you know, you, you're, you're saying that, okay, it's like, it's a big time gaps here. Assuming that the Akmos thing isn't a problem, maybe it is, maybe it's not, whatever. Um, with this home, Ramsey is the second thing. All right, so I'm pretty sure that everyone agrees that they were put in slavery before uh, Ramses was built, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm thinking, I, I mean, I don't see it from a grammatical perspective. I don't see any reason why they, um, verse 11 wouldn't be implying that okay you know the israelites were put into slavery and then the conclusion of all this slavery the the main significance here is what they're saying is that pithom and ramses was built and that's extremely important here because that's where all this nonsense is happening of the story um so like yeah there's a time gap time jump but you know genesis does that all the time in regards to like you know an editorial hand kind of thing like um you know it'll say something like you know abraham did this and now it now this city is called this um not like it's an update is what i'm saying is what i'm saying is mm -hmm. that um like there's it's like narrative like you know inclusions almost like it's in parentheses um mm -hmm. I mean, I don't see any reason from the text why that couldn't possibly be. Maybe it's ad hoc. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think it reflects the original text. I don't think it's uh, uh, a redaction either in a parenthesis or the name was uh, changed from Avaris to Ramses and the, from the original text in the form that we have uh, Exodus uh, right now. So I don't know if that's the direction you want to go. Yeah. So just so I'm on the same page with you. So do you think that at verse 11, it says they put foremen over their sides to impress them with hard labor. And are you thinking immediately they started building, building Pithom and Ramses? Mm. Looking at the archaeological evidence, I think would be helpful, right? Right. Sure. We would have information about that. So... <laughs> I uh, took a few parts of my article. I'm working on my new theory for the dating of the Exodus. And um, there are basically, um, both of these cities are known. Some might object to Pithom, the location of Pithom, but others accept that uh, its location is at Tel Rotaba. Um, that's mostly the consensus, uh, at least of the maximalists like James Hoffmeyer, um, David Falk, uh, if we keep mentioning him and others, uh, that um, 
Teleratoba is pitha. Now, when we look at the archaeological evidence, we see that after Ahmos I uh, conquered the northern kingdom, we see that immediately after, in the early 18th dynasty, we have 12 silos built over three phases. Uh, the archaeological work there is done by a Polish-Slovak team that excavates Telerotaba. And at the same time, domestic and industrial structures were dated by the pottery to the early 18th dynasty. And it's interesting that you have 12 silos built over three phases. They go from about 1520 to 1450-ish. I don't remember exactly when these silos were built. So it's interesting that right after Ahmos conquers um, the Northern Kingdom, you have evidence like this. The place was lived by other people. They worked there. You have uh, all kinds of uh, evidence that there were people that were doing crafts and working at Pithom, accepting that Pithom is Tela Ratava. So this is the kind of evidence you were asking about soon after? Yo, yeah, is, that, that's very interesting. That's right after Ahmos the first. So we're just talking within one, two decades when we start seeing this evidence even soon right after. Well, that's for Pithom, but Ramses though, right? It's okay, later. we're going to go to Ramses as well. Sure. Um, we could say a lot of things about Pithom and the research in uh, Telerotaba is taking okay. place as we speak. So okay. that's exciting. Uh, uh, it's uh, two Eastern European countries that have been doing all this work in uh, in uh, Rotaba, while at Avaris, the work has been much longer since the 1960s. Wow. And uh, it has been led by Manfred Bietok from uh, the Austrian uh, universities. And uh, he's just done an amazing job. So looking at, um, um, at this point, it wasn't called Ramses. It was called Avaris uh, soon after Ahmos I conquered. Uh, Peru Nefer, as was the Egyptian name. Um, Bitak affirms about the remaining Asiatics that they were distributed all over the country as slaves and soldiers during the reign of Ahmos I. And in the early phase of the 18th dynasty, Avaris was mainly a storage city built to facilitate the existence of a military camp. We need to understand that Avaris was a major hub, uh, economical hub, because it was uh, up the Nile stream. And at the same time, it was a good place to launch military campaigns into the Levant. He goes on and says, the excavations never provided an indication of a large-scale destruction of the town after the conquest of the city by Ahmos, while, and this is interesting, the unchanging pottery production into the early 18th dynasty show a certain continuity on the site. So what's he, what he's saying is we looked at the pottery and the Hyksos pottery and what comes uh, after Ahmos conquers, there are similarities between the uh, style of the pottery. 
you would expect the local slaves to produce those uh, these potteries and not necessarily the Egyptians, especially if you had you had them enslaved. And I think this fits well with the biblical statement that the Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph used the Semitic population as free workforce to build the store cities of Pithom and Ramses. Mm. Okay, so that obviously assumes that Ramses of Varus. Um... Uh, well, it doesn't necessarily need to mean that, but uh, it implies that. I think the discussion, the discussion is much more complicated because it moves from the archaeology to the source criticism, redaction criticism, and all that. And if you take the view, if it's a retrojection or if it's a redaction, as the early daters take, and the discussion is uh, pretty difficult here. Now, uh, in his video on Pithom, Dr. Falk uh, says at one point that the Semites at Pithom have left the city on or prior to the reign of Amenhotep I. And he's aiming here at Kennedy. I quote him, essentially the abandonment Titus Kennedy is talking about occurred 150 to 200 years prior to the early Exodus date and would not be repopulated with Semites until the beginning of Dynasty 19. But we know that the city, Pithom, was populated until about 14-ish hundred, and then there's a period of 100 years when there's a, a gap, and then again it's repopulated in the 19th dynasty. I agree with that. It doesn't mean that the exodus took place uh, right about that time. What I wanted to say is, Dr. Falk is very certain to say the Semitics left on or prior to the reign of Amenhotep I. So I went and I looked at the research done by the archaeologist at Tel Rotaba, and they aren't as certain as he is. They're saying the following thing. The very beginning of the New Kingdom is not represented in the corpus of ceramics. One could speculate that there was a Hyksos population on the site through the times of Hatshepsut, Tutmosis III, but the evidence for the hypo hypothesis is still forthcoming. So it's not certain at this point as the archaeological work is still taking place. He could be right, he could be wrong, but usually you don't make strong statements when you don't have evidence. You just need for the evidence to come out. Saying a definite no might end up with being a yes, and then you have to change your statement on that. At least that's where the archaeological data is pointing at this time. It's maybe yes, maybe no. We don't know yet. So what you're saying, basically saying, is that Falk was saying, like, your theory with this time period of Pithom doesn't work, but the archaeological evidence doesn't necessarily yeah, say that. There might have been Semitics that have continued to live there uh, from among the Hyksos, or there might have not. We just don't know at this point. Mm. And like I said, the research is still taking place. The pandemic affected the research by a few years. So um, hopefully some mm. research that was done in the past years will yet publish more. Mm. And they've started to publish more since about 2000, uh, 2022. Mm. Gotcha. Yeah. So my understanding, and I haven't looked at the evidence for it, is my understanding is that Egypt, like, 
specifically almost the first completely destroyed like the Hyksos, just like obliterated them so that they don't exist at all after this time period. I would assume that you disagree with that. Um, do you know what the evidence is for that they, that this, you know, supposedly destroyed well, her? he did have uh, just some, we could consider them minor campaigns uh, within Canaan. And he just fought mm. uh, against specific cities. There is just a couple of them. A few of them, I don't remember the exact number, but it's not a lot. The big campaigner that went all the way to the Euphrates was the I. He was um, Hatshep, Hatshepsut's father. So he was the big campaigner that went into Canaan. He went all the way into Syria and then all the way into Mitanni land. But uh, when it comes to Ahmos I, what he did was mostly in the country. Now, mm. I don't have any evidence, or at least I don't know it. I might be wrong. I haven't read everything that is out there that he would have killed the Hyksos within the country, completely obliterated them. I'm sure he killed a lot, and we know that he killed a lot of the enemies, mm. but it doesn't mean he killed them all. They rarely did this to just kill all the enemies. Many, many times they took slaves and they brought them into the country. So if you have a large population that mm. is already there in the country and you could turn them into slave, into workforce, why not take advantage mm. of that? Uh, because imagine they had situations where they brought tens of thousands of slaves for days and days. And uh, that's not easy work. When you have it there in the country, I think yep. that's an advantage. Yeah, yeah. So your theory is that the Hyksos and the they they they, they were afraid that they were going to join the Hyksos, so they. I didn't the say necessarily slaves, the right? Hyksos. I said that the Hyksos okay would make them think twice about any possible enemy that could okay, come right, from right. within. So I'm not saying the Hyksos were the threat that they were looking at. But the, the mm -hmm. history taught them oh, that okay. you can never underestimate an ethnic group that remains united and you just mm -hmm. let them do whatever they want in your country because you never know what's mm -hmm. going to happen in the future. Okay, so if you don't necessarily say that, I mean, isn't it, uh, you know, verse 10 says, if a war breaks out, they will ally themselves with our enemies and fight against us to leave the country. So... Falk's view is that the only enemies we really, really ever see is the Hittites. So why would we think that there would be anybody else if the Hyksos are already destroyed? So under your view, wouldn't you have to say that they would be worried they're going to join the Hyksos? It doesn't say which enemies here. Right. And the other thing is, look at what the last part of verse 10 says. They'll fight against us and leave the country. That's an interesting aspect I only uh, observed uh, recently. It doesn't okay. mean they're afraid they're going to take over the country, but they're going to cause great, great damage in their desire to leave the country. Mm. Because when you, you, when you had wars, the military left the country. And mm -hmm. that made uh, the country to be able to be attacked. Because when you have your your military going to Canaan or going to Syria, in that situation, if you have a free population that uh, would want to leave but they can't, um, 
they're going to do whatever they can in order to leave the country. And another, another aspect is we know that the Israelites wanted to go to Canaan. We know their stories. We know their history from Genesis. But mm -hmm. don't you think that the Pharaoh or the Pharaohs already knew where they wanted to go? Because <laughs> that's another reason for which the Pharaoh of the Exodus didn't want to let them leave. Because he knew if I'm not going to fight them here now and their God, I'm going to ha have to fight them in Canaan anyway, because that was controlled by them as well. So I think that's mm -hmm. another reason they didn't want to let them leave the country because they knew where they wanted to go. And what mm -hmm. the pharaohs of the early 18th dynasty wanted to do was to control all the land up to the Euphrates. That was their goal. It wasn't the same control as in Egypt proper, but these were vassal states which paid tribute, which paid with slaves, which paid with a lot of other things. So they wanted this control because it brought a lot of money into their country and it helped their economy. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about um, specifically like how long they were in Egypt. So um, you have the, the 430 number, you have like 400 given by Abraham, you have... Um, or is it 430? I, I don't actually have the text in front of me. Genesis 15 is 400. 400, okay. And then, you know, the, the, you know, some argue that it's referring to the time in Canaan, but also Egypt, like a combination of the two. Um, do you have a specific reason why you don't think that's right? Um, so Apostle Paul uh, sides with the Septuagint in, in uh, Galatians chapter 3 where he mm -hmm. says that the time uh, from the giving of the promise, meaning the calling of Abraham, to the mm -hmm. time of the giving of the law uh, at Mount Sinai was 430 mm -hmm. years, which happened in the first year of the Exodus. Mm -hmm. And so he puts together, according to Exodus 12 and 1240, he puts together the time spent in Canaan and in Egypt. Also the... Uh, Samaritan Pentateuch sides with the Septuagint here too. Hmm. And so, go so it is Egypt and Canaan then. It is, what is you're Egypt and Canaan. I think in the Samaritan Pentateuch is uh, Canaan and Egypt. It just flips it, but the argument remains. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so you don't necessarily have an issue with that. Um, do you agree with Falk in that case then? Uh, I don't even know where he stands on this. If you <laughs> okay. with the Septuagint or the Masoretic. Well, not necessarily that, but the how long they were. Well, not necessarily how long they were in Egypt, but whether that 430 number refers to all of Egypt or Egypt and Canaan. Yeah, I don't think he takes a literal view of these numbers here, but uh, I think he sides as a variant with the Septuagint. Yes, so for years. I've been seeing things the same way. A lot of people go with uh, verse 13 in uh, Genesis 15, you referenced it. It says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, I've read this verse the same way many times, referencing the idea that there will be 400 years in Egypt. But okay. his offspring offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs 
can just as well reference to Canaan because at that point Canaan wasn't theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. There are just three sequences, sojourners, servants, and afflicted. Mm. And when you look into the Hebrew text, uh, it can be clear that it can reference to these things taken together, Canaan and Egypt. Because they were sojourners in Canaan. Mm. It wasn't their land. So that's uh, how I understand this verse. And I don't mm. think it contradicts the idea of uh, 430 being the total. Mm. Um, so, you, but, so you said... Uh, late daters placed Joseph under the Hyksos, but reject the numbers of both 1 Kings 6.1 and Exodus 12.40. As a general so, rule, yeah, they wouldn't yeah. necessarily take these. Although it kind of fits, uh, I don't know for certain about Jace Meyer, but he kind of places it right about 1690, 1700, so 1260 plus, well, in this case, he would go with the Masoretic. No, they would go with the Masoretic text. 430. Okay. So, I mean, if, if anyone wants to listen to why, you know, scholars don't take 1 Kings 6-1 literally, go check the, the Falk and Titus Kennedy debate on it. Uh, Exodus 12-40, though, um, what reason do you think that we should take this as, you know, completely literally? I don't think there is any power argument, powerful argument. Um I think it should be worked with, depending on the period you start from. Uh, like I said, it could be 430, it could be 215 in Egypt. And what people usually do is they take one of the two if it favors their position. That's what yeah. most do. Also, with the early daters, they almost always favor uh, the Masoretic text. And they leave aside the Septuagint. Rarely have I seen uh, early daters using the variants from the Septuagint, although there are mm -hmm. quite a few. Um, maybe I'm exaggerating. It is not necessarily a general rule, but specifically in Exodus 1240, almost all the ones that I've read go with 430 mm -hmm. years uh, in Egypt. Hmm. So... Do you know the views of Falk and all that about why they don't take Exodus 1240 literally? I haven't heard him talk on this or write on this, um, but uh, with late daters, there, there is, is uh, as a general rule, a reluctance to take such big numbers as literal. Okay, so uh, one of the one of the scholars I just I recently talked to argued that. Uh, this 430 number is arguing that, or not arguing, but, you know, they have the, the generations, the number 40, um, you know, oftentimes, especially with 1 Kings 6.1, there's good reason to think that it's taking 40 times, what is it, 12? Uh, that would be 480. That's a different number. In what is 1 Kings 6.1? It's 480 in the Masoretic. And the Masoretic, okay. So first, forty-eight. Okay, yep. So, four, uh, forty times twelve. Twelve. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah Four hundred eighty. 
Yeah. Okay. Just making sure. So, okay. So I understand what you're saying now. Okay. Um, right. So 480, obviously that there's good reason to think in my opinion, at least that it's, you know, they're doing something with the number 40 there. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, so I've also heard that, uh, for Exodus 1240, 430 years could be referring to, all right. Uh, you know, say a generation is 40 years or 40 time or, you know, what is 400 divided by 40? That's 10. So maybe it's like 10 generations ish. And then the 30 refers to um, like the end, but it's not finished period. So like, I don't know, like the, the, the almost done with that uh, 11th generation, but not completely done with it yet. And I mean, maybe that seems like a weird view to take. Um, I, don't necessarily, um, considering what we know about the, the number 40, I don't see a, a big reason to think that it's not possible. Um, although I think there's a ton of evidence to think that the, the four generations that are referred to in Exodus 6 aren't supposed to be like that there were only four generations. I think there's a ton of evidence for that. Do you have an opinion on it? Do you think it's there was actually only four generations and that each generation of Exodus 6 lived, you know, 100 plus years? Well, obviously, if you go with the 430 years, mm -hmm. you can't make them. Um, they'd have babies you know, when they're over 100 years. But um, 215 years could be closer to reality um, because when you actually look into the gene genealogies that you have in the Torah after they leave uh, Egypt, it's not actually four generations. It's a little bit more than that. Now, there are four generations that lived in Egypt, mm -hmm. and uh, basically... Some of them died in Egypt on the fourth generation, but you also have some on the fourth generation still being alive and li living, probably the older uh, people. Mm -hmm. Yet when you look, you can see also a fifth, a sixth, and sometimes even a seventh generation. So it depends. You would have them having babies. Uh, so if you go with six generations, um, six times 40 is 200, uh, 240. So they'd have babies uh, in a median way in their 30s, so, which is plausible. So you're, what you're saying is that you should take that 430 number and cut it in half? Because 215 is mm -hmm. spent in Canaan and 215 is spent in Egypt. That's mm -hmm. the Septuagint view. Um, of Exodus 1240. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. All right. Interesting. Um Interesting. Okay. So, so Falk's view for Exodus 6 is that, you know, these are clans, which, I mean, it seems pretty obvious that they are clans. The question is, yeah. you know, whether, you know, it's describing one person that lived a certain amount of time period, whether it's symbolic or whether that is the, the, the length of the clan, yeah. um, which is an interesting topic, uh, would take a lot of time to get into. Um, but I think that there's pretty good evidence to say that, you know, there, it wasn't just four generations there, there, um, 
First Chronicles uh, six, maybe, or First yeah. Chronicles seven, um, that it describes like, I mean, there's a little debate about it, but uh, and and the tribe of Ephraim, which Ephraim comes into Egypt with Jacob and Joseph and all of them, but and then he dies in Egypt, and then there's another men- a mention of Ephraim in that passage, and it is specifically says that he's in Canaan. So unless if there's some like ridiculous, you know, uh, you're talking about his descendants. Yeah, right. His first, descendants. First Chronicles seven, I yeah, think it is, or six. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's seven. That makes sense. Um, but but this there's like, you know, ten or whatever, um, twelve maybe eleven uh, generations from Joseph to Joshua. Mm-hmm. But then the the Exodus six genealogy only mentions uh, Levi, Kohath, Amron, and then uh, Moses. So there's mm-hmm. only four. But mm-hmm. of course, some were already even alive when they go into Exodus. Um, In addition, uh, okay, here Jochebed, Amram's wife, is referred to as the daughter of Levi in Numbers twenty six fifty nine, and Amram's father. Uh, which is supposedly Kohath's sister, is in Exodus 6.20, which would place Jochebed with her brother Kohath at the entrance of the Israelites into Egypt. Thus, she would have to be at least 350 years old when she gave birth to Moses if there were no gaps in the Mosaic genealogies. Um, so, like, weird things like that, and there's others that we could talk about maybe later. But So, how does... So, you think that it's 2.15. Um, I mean, are you... Con- like, do you think that's exact? Or do you think that is... Um, like there's wiggle room there. Well, that's what we have, and I'm just gonna go whatever. If there is or not a wiggle room, I don't have anything else to go with. So. <laughs> well, I mean specifically, like, um, you know, maybe not instead of two fifteen, it's two hundred, and then two thirty. You know, there are um, variants uh, even in the Septuagint, five years plus minus. Oh, so. Uh, yeah, you have some manuscripts with 435 mm-hmm. in Exodus 1240, but they're not considered reliable. I don't exactly know the discussion around this, but I know there is this variant. I think that's all I wanted to talk about. Um, uh, yeah, so um, any last thoughts? Yeah, the Exodus is a, is a very interesting topic. Um I have been trying to work on a new theory and I hope to have it uh, in about two years and write a (laughs) peer-reviewed article. I don't want to give too much info until it's peer-reviewed, but uh, you might find tidbits here and there where I lean and certain things that I take from the late view, certain things I take from the early view. It's a mix, but I'm with neither of them. Gotcha. Yeah. So no, it's really interesting. Um, I uh, I think this is a great opportunity this discussion, not specifically like, you know, to say like, okay, I'm right or you're right. Obviously, I'm not an expert on this topic anyway, so nobody's going to think that for me. But um, specifically, um, what I would like to see is um, some of these arguments addressed, maybe comments on if, if they have an issue with like your arguments, like, you know, let's see some discussion about it. Sure. Um, and then... Um, you know, maybe we can get some pushback on, you know, other things that I said, or maybe some clarity. Um, 
but obviously I think this is a good opportunity just to understand the text more and um, learn more about history. So this has been great. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Um, go everyone go out, check out uh, Benny's channel, really good stuff there. And he's going to be talking more about the Exodus. So that'll be fun. And uh, it'd be great to hear about your peer review article whenever it comes out. Um, Hopefully it'll be out and uh, I'm looking for a PhD program to start and my PhD thesis will be on this topic. Oh, sick. Awesome. Sweet. All right. Well, this has been fun, Vinny. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Awesome. Yes, sir.